0: Good morning. Good Good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Chapter 17. And while you're making your way to that passage, let me just say uh, to the new folks, good to see you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And for the last few weeks in our study in John's Gospel, we have been looking at Chapter 17, which contains... A prayer that many commentators call the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ to his Father. No doubt the deepest and most profound prayer in the Bible. And it's divided simply into three main parts. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his disciples. And then Jesus prays for all believers. Now, this morning we want to start looking at the uh, second main part of this prayer. Jesus prays for his disciples. It covers verses 6 through 19. And look, as we study this section in John chapter 17, I want you to understand that we get a real glimpse into the great love and concern that Jesus has for those who are his. I mean, ever since the Garden of Eden, when mankind fell, fell from God's original intent for the human race, it was God's desire to restore man from his fallen condition to a place of fellowship with himself, with God. I mean, God from the very beginning wanted to call a people to himself who would love him and obey him freely and wholeheartedly, a people he could fellowship with and care for, a people he could call his own, a very special people that he could bless and be glorified through. Now, of course, This is a theme that dominates the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, a theme we call redemption. In John 17, Jesus is praying to his father. At this point, he is only hours from the cross, hours, and yet from his prayer, it's obvious that his thoughts are not dominated with what lies ahead for himself. Instead, He is deeply concerned for his disciples and what lies ahead for them. And so he is praying for those who are his, listen, with a fervency, a concern, a compassion that gives us, I think, a beautiful look into the heart of God for those that belong to him. So often when we find ourselves going through um, a difficult or painful circumstance, sometimes we're tempted and we're praying, but things aren't changing. Sometimes we're tempted to ask the Lord, do you even care? Lord, do you really care about what I'm going through? And the answer that comes through so clearly, I think, from this section in John 17 is a resounding yes. Yes, God cares about you. In fact, he is always thinking about you every second of every day. The psalmist says in Psalm 40, verse 5, and Psalm 139, verse 17, that God's thoughts to us are so great, so numerous, they're like the sand of the seashores, all the sand. Uh, the stars of heaven, they're innumerable. They cannot be counted. God is always thinking about us as his kids. In fact, Jesus said, even the very hairs of our head are numbered by God. Some of you make it easy on them. (laughs) (laughs) A little sanctified humor. Look, why is that important that we know that? Because it tells us that God is concerned about the very smallest details of our life. And if he's worried about or concerned about the smallest things of our lives, he's definitely concerned about the big things. Right? So we have to understand that. Now, as we move into the, section main, the second main section of this prayer, this incredible prayer, we're going to pick it up as Jesus prays for his disciples. We're going to pick it up in verse 6, where Jesus said to his Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. When Jesus speaks of the Father's name, it was a Jewish way of referring to his whole character and nature. In other words, all that the Father is, is embedded in or embodied in the concept of his name. It reminds us of something Jesus taught his disciples earlier in the evening, about them praying to the Father for the work of the kingdom once Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead, and ascended back to his Father, He said in John 16, verse 23, In that day you will ask me nothing, because I won't be here physically like I have been. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. In the Jewish mind, to ask for something in someone else's name meant to ask for something as their representative, as their representative something they would have asked for if they had been there in person it would be something that was in harmony with their character Um, for in the jewish mind once again the concept of name speaks of all that a person is their nature you know moses asked god lord tell me your name and what god did was he told moses basically his nature (laughs) He said, my name is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. And you can read the passage out of Exodus 34. To ask something in Jesus' name means I'm asking for things that are consistent with his nature and character. I'm not asking God, can I have the nicest Cadillac that they make? Can I live in the fanciest house in town? Jesus was the one who had nowhere to lay his head. He owned no house. Uh, The only thing he owned when he was crucified that day was the clothes on his back. He was more concerned about laying up treasures in heaven for all of us than he was for us laying up for ourselves treasures on earth. A lot of Christians don't seem to understand that. Now the word manifested means to reveal. So when Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men you have given, you have given me, he is saying, I have revealed your character to the men you have given me. How did he do that? How did Jesus reveal the character of his Father in heaven to his disciples? The word translated manifest is a Greek word that means to shine forth. To shine forth. It's a word that doesn't so much mean declaration as it does illustration. In other words, when Jesus said, I have manifested your name, He wasn't saying, you know, I've run around preaching Yahweh, 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 everywhere I go. Rather, he was saying, I have lived it out. I have revealed the nature of God observably through my life. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to demonstrate to this world, yes, in words, but mostly through the way we live, what he's all about, what he's all about. If the only source of information about God came from the lives of his people, people would have and do have a very warped understanding of God. And that's a shame. That's a tragedy because Jesus always represented his father faithfully. He was the true and faithful witness, right? And so on. We've covered this, but let me just say this again. Do you want to know what God is really like? well look at jesus but don't just focus on one aspect of his character as so many do like his love to get a proper understanding of who jesus is and by extension the entire trinity the godhead you must see him for all that he is and yes he is love and we thank god that he is love but as we look at the pages of scripture we realize that as god has revealed himself he is also holy gracious kind merciful, long-suffering, patient, gentle, righteous, and just. And I'm sure the list would continue. But you get an idea. If you're going to properly understand Jesus, then you have to understand him in his entirety, in his totality, as much as we can understand that in this life, right? We, got, we have to look at Jesus for all that he is. And no person has the right to pick and choose from those li- that list of attributes what they like and reject what they don't like and, and put together a God of their own making, right? We don't have that right. Nobody does. Uh, people today are all, all about making a God of their own creation, a God that is like unto them. In other words, a God who was soft on sin because those people that believe in God, unbelievers, they want to make him in their likeness and their image and they're soft on sin so their god has to be soft on sin he's a god who was all love but listen no justice no judgment he's a god that's all merciful but no holiness that is not the god of the bible you've constructed a false god and if you believe in that god with all your heart it's not gonna eat you to heaven because you know idolatry which is what that is when you don't Accept God for who He has revealed Himself to be, but instead you make for a God uh, yourself a God of your own making, your own liking. Yeah, maybe you've heard the um, somebody say to you, you're talking, uh, witnessing to them maybe, and um, and you're talking about you know maybe a coming judgment, uh, hell, right? And uh, you know I've heard people say to me, well, that's not my God. My God is a God that would never send anyone to hell. And I, and I just tell him, yes, you're right. Your God would never send anyone to hell because he's not real. He doesn't exist. You've fabricated him. He's a God of your own imagination, a God that you want him to be because he allows you to go on living a life that is contrary to what the true and living God has set forth in his word. If you do that, if you make for yourself a God of your own invention, you're gonna stand before Jesus Christ someday, the righteous judge of all the earth, and discover the truth and suffer the consequences. And the consequences will be of of, um, creating in your mind a concept of God, but a false God, instead of the true and living God who has revealed himself through the pages of scripture. Folks, that's a PSA, (laughs) public service announcement. Take it to heart. Because if you don't take it to heart now, you will stand before the Lord someday and experience a horrible reality that God doesn't accept idolatry as true faith. You know, it's only when we pursue the true and living God that we will come to know him. And uh, it's got to be the true God, from the Bible. The psalmist said in Psalm 9, verse 10, And those who know your name, who know you in truth, will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Yes, who seek you in truth. So a lot of folks that have a concept of God, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and many others, they have a concept of Jesus Christ that is completely contrary to what the Bible says of Jesus. He's the brother of, he is the brother of Lucifer. He is Michael the archangel. I mean, all kinds of weird uh, concepts about Jesus Christ uh, that are not from the word of God. Now, you can put your faith, you can have all the faith in the world, you put it in a false Christ, that Christ is not going to save you. That's why it's so important we understand what the Bible teaches about our God. And what Jesus meant when he said, I have faithfully represented, manifested you, to the people of this world. Well, again, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. Listen, out of the world. Guys, in this context, the world, cosmos in the Greek, refers to the fallen world system that is controlled by the devil and which is in rebellion against God. A system that is constantly trying to drag us as Christians back under its control or Simply do away with us altogether. The latter is becoming more the chosen option of this generation. They want to do away with us. Right now it's just canceling us, right? Uh, you know, whatever. The day may come when they may want to cancel us physically, take us out. And so in that regard, guys, Jesus is praying. If, you're not, if you haven't figured it out yet, What he is most concerned this night, hours from the cross, as he's praying for his disciples, he is most concerned about the warfare they're going to experience as they go into all the world, right? He's going to commission them to do that before he ascends back to his father. And he's concerned about what is going to happen to them, how they're going to uh, respond, how they're going to have victory uh, over the world who is going to persecute them mercilessly, try to stamp out their witness, This is the warfare. It's warfare is the idea. Keep that in mind as we go through this section. That's what really was on our Lord's heart with regard to his disciples. The warfare they would face when they would go into the world to preach the gospel. Now we've talked about this before in our study in John's gospel. I'm not going to belabor it. But let me just say this. There are two conflicting systems. Two opposing kingdoms, which Jesus clearly alluded to in John chapter 8. Remember when he was talking to the Pharisees in verse 23. He said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. What Jesus is telling us is that there are, there are two opposing kingdoms. And these kingdoms are in constant conflict, constant war with one another. The Bible calls one the kingdom of light and calls the other the kingdom of darkness. Or, to put it more precisely, one is the kingdom of God, the other is the kingdom of the devil. And listen, every human being belongs to one of these two kingdoms. You say, not me. okay? Uh, I'm not playing that game. Look, you can choose which kingdom you want to belong to, but you can't opt out. You don't have that ability. God doesn't give you that luxury. Everybody belongs to one of these two kingdoms. Listen to me. Each kingdom being entered into through birth. Through birth. I mean, Satan's kingdom is entered into through physical birth. We're all born, fallen descendants of Adam, right? We were born into the kingdom of darkness. Uh, It was all around us. It was in us. We were children, fallen children of Adam at one point. And so we were born physically into Satan's kingdom. And then we were born spiritually into the kingdom of God through a second birth, right? The very thing Jesus talked about in John chapter 3, how that if you want to be a member of God's heavenly kingdom, you have to be born a second time, born again of the Spirit by receiving Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior. But guys, these two births become the entry points into two very different kingdoms ruled by two very different kings. The one is ruled by Almighty God, Yahweh, and the other is ruled by a usurper God, the God of this world, Lucifer, who we also know as Satan. And the Bible calls God's kingdom a kingdom of light and life, and calls Satan's kingdom a kingdom of darkness and death. When Jesus told these Pharisees in John 8 that he was from above heaven and they were from beneath this fallen world system, he was making reference to these two kingdoms. Now, with that in mind, back again to verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Now, when Jesus said that the Father had given to him men, disciples, out of the world, Well, that's exactly what the church is. That's exactly what the church is. The Greek word translated church in the New Testament is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia, a word that literally means an assembly of called out ones. It speaks of those who have been called out of the world. Once you got saved, God called you out of the world. You're still in the world physically, but you were called out spiritually and morally to a life of separation and service to God as his own special people. Now, you're thinking, God thinks I'm special? Yeah, but you no, know, think of special ed. We're damaged. Okay, we're special, you know. Uh, but, you know. But Peter talks about this, right? He said, First uh, Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal generation priesthood a holy nation his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light called you out of the kingdom of darkness into now the kingdom of light his kingdom and now that we as christians are no longer a part of this fallen world system which is controlled by the devil guess what the devil whom you used to belong to he never loved you I mean, uh, Satanists think that the devil is on their side. Uh, You know, that the devil really cares about them. The devil hates everybody. (laughs) He hates Satanists almost as much as he hates Christians. The only person he loves is himself, basically. But we all belong to the devil at one point. But now that we've been called out of the devil's kingdom to uh, be children of God... um, the devil and his people and his whole world system has declared war on us. This is the warfare. Now, Jesus alluded to this earlier. Spiritual warfare. Jesus alluded to Well, he didn't actually allude to it. He said it directly. In fact, turn to John 15. This is all the same night. All right? John 15 just took place just probably moments before John 17. But Jesus had talked about this. It was still fresh in his mind as he's praying to his father. Understand that a lot of what he's praying to his father about he shared with his disciples because he was concerned about them. But he told them in verse 18, John 15 verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you still belong to the world, The world would love its own. Doesn't the world love its own? Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Guys, we are not any longer part of the world, this fallen world system controlled by Satan. We live in it, yes, but we are not a part of it. We have been redeemed. Now, a question that I've gotten over the years And maybe some of you are asking it in your heart right now. How does a person know for sure if they have been redeemed out of the world and are now a child of God? I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I filled out the prayer card. Okay, at the last Billy Graham crusade or whoever, uh, Greg Laurie crusade or something, right? But how do I know I'm really born again? Well, that's a good question. And very simply, Jesus tells us how in verse 6 of John 17. When he said, let me back up and read the whole verse again. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and listen, they have kept your word. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 8, to a group of would-be disciples now Jesus like any celebrity and I'm not saying Jesus thought of himself as a celebrity but you know how it is there's always going to be people that want to follow somebody that seems to be going somewhere right and so Jesus you know attracted true disciples but he also attracted would-be disciples people that weren't really born again who didn't really were not really following him for the right reasons they believe he was Messiah, he's going to set up a kingdom, I'm going to be a prime minister, I'm going to have a nice house to live in, a great salary, I'm going to be respected, and so on. A lot of people followed Jesus for the wrong reasons, as they do today. All right, And so at one point in John 8, Jesus turned to a group of would-be disciples, some of them probably were real, and he said to them, if you abide in my word. Now the Greek is... Basically, if you keep walking in my word and obeying it continually, listen, you are my disciples indeed, the Greek word, truly, you are truly my disciples. If you continue in my word, walking in it in obedience. Guys, I want to say this because people, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying. A life of ongoing obedience to the word of God, listen, doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't earn you the right to be a child of God. We are not saved by our works. It's simply the evidence. Please, understand that. It's simply the evidence that you have received Jesus into your heart. The Holy Spirit has moved in and made you a new creation where old things have passed away and all things have become new. How do i know i'm a born again child of god because as i look back at my life before i received christ in my heart i can tell you with without a shadow of a doubt i am not the same person i used to be old things have passed away somebody was saying to me after first service that before she got saved she was a clubber. she loved to go to clubs she actually carried a gun Her husband sold the gun when they got married because he was afraid she had a temper and didn't want the gun in the house. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you who she is. Love her. Love her. But she, she was going to church before she got saved. And she would hear people talk about this new life in Christ. And so she eventually prayed to receive Jesus into her heart. But initially she thought, how am I going to give up all this stuff I love doing? What she didn't realize is, once you give your heart to Christ, the Holy Spirit moves in. And it begins to work from the inside to make you a new creation. And what she didn't realize is that after a while, it wasn't that she was trying so hard to stop doing what she used to do. She was just all, all preoccupied with doing new things that she had never done. I mean, she went to church, but now going to, she went to church because she loved to be around God's people. Sing His praises, study His word, that kind of thing, right? I mean, if, if there has not been a change that has taken place in your life, and I'm not saying uh, necessarily a dramatic change initially. Some people have this dramatic conversion experience, right? And everybody else looks at them and goes, gee, am I really saved because I, I don't ha- didn't have that kind of experience? Look, everyone grows at their own rate. But if there's no growth, if there's no change at all, you need to ask yourself, have you really accepted Christ into your heart? A changed life, I mean, doesn't make you a Christian. It's the evidence that you have received Jesus into your heart. The Spirit has moved in, made you a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. You're living a different life. Your thoughts are different. You're thinking a different way about life, and so on. In that regard, guys, obedience. This is the point I want to make. In that regard, obedience is salvation's litmus test. He said again, how do we know we're really born again? How do we know that the Spirit has moved in? I prayed the prayer and I'm really a Christian now? Well, obedience to what God has said is salvation's litmus test, proving the genuineness of your salvation. Turn to 1 John 2. And remember, the same person that wrote the Gospel of John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But let's just focus on 1st John. In many ways, 1st John is an amplification of what Jesus said during his earthly ministry. If you would study it carefully, you would see that in 1st John, John expands on something Jesus said in the Gospels, but Jesus put it very simply. He didn't elaborate. And so John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picks it up. And begins to elaborate on it. Very important. I think it's an incredible epistle, right? But here's what John said about this. How do we know we're really a Christian? Well, here it is. 1 John 2, starting with verse 3. By this we know that we know him. (laughs) By this we know that we are saved. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. And does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not. And you read that and go, oh, John, you're kind of hard on people. You know, uh, you know. You read John's the kind of guy. Him and James, no doubt, hung out a lot because they, either one of them never read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. So <laughs> they just, they just laid it out there. You say, well, isn't John being a little hard on people? Can I just turn it around and go? Aren't pastors today being a little too soft on people? I mean, when a person's eternity hangs in the balance, do you think we ought to tiptoe around issues and walk on eggshells? Or do you think we ought to just get it out there? Speak the truth. you in love, but don't water it down. Don't worry about if you're going to offend somebody. Now, John is speaking from the heart. He's speaking, you know, getting it right out there. How do we know we know him? Are you keeping his commandments? None of us does that perfectly all the time. But is that the general pattern of our lives? If it isn't, and I've seen people who walk in there, go to church, nod in agreement with everything that is said, walk out there, and don't do anything with it through their weekly lives. How do we know if we know him? Do we keep his commandments? He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him, verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, in Christ. We're saved. We know this. Obedience. Guys, in these verses, John wants to give his readers, now listen, not all of John's, these were all churchgoers, but not all true believers. You have to understand that. So when John wrote these folks, he wanted to encourage believers, but he didn't want to give comfort to unbelievers. So he's trying to walk a line, right? As uh, Vance Havner, the great Baptist preacher, used to say, he sought his ministry to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's not always an easy line to walk, all right? But John, through the Holy Spirit, is walking it here. And so he wants his readers, again, all churchgoers, but not all true believers, he wants to give them a way by which they might have some kind of a test whereby they might test the genuineness of their faith. And the test that he gives them is obedience to the word of God. And even though, guys, there's always going to be exceptions. What do I mean? Carnal Christians, people who are genuinely saved but still live very carnally and uh, and live for the world more at any given time than living for the Lord. And sometimes unbelievers who are very moral and loving people. So, you know, can get a little gray and things, but there's always exceptions to the rule. But in general, these traits that John outlines, uh, these traits and behaviors identify Christians from non-Christians. Now he really tries to hammer this home in chapter 3, if you turn to 1 John 3. And I have to kind of read it to you uh, the way the Greek is constructed, is it means all the difference in the world, makes all the difference. So in 1 John 3, again, talking to people who may think they're Christians but are not. John gives them this litmus test. 1 John 3, 4. He said, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Now let me stop there. Because people have read this and go, well, uh, from this they teach a doctrine called the doctrine of Christian perfectionism, which, which says that once a person receives Christ, they never sin again. Huh. <laughs> I'd like to be a fly, a fly on the wall of the car, you know, when they're driving on the expressway one time. But right here, doesn't it say that? Uh, They maintain whoever abides in him does not sin. Well, the Greek actually says, whoever abides in Christ does not, listen, practice sin, does not live habitually in sin. It's the idea. Whoever sins, John said, and that means deliberately and habitually sins as a lifestyle, has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just just as he is righteous. And he who sins, in other words, practices sins, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. That's the idea, right? Now, Warren Worsby, who I think is a great commentator on God's word with the Lord now. You can get his commentaries uh, online. On or um, They're not that expensive, but I think they're worth Investing in, but with regard to this passage, here's what Warren Wordsworth said. He says, and I quote: "To practice sin is to sin consistently and is a way of life. It does not refer to committing an occasional sin. It is clear that no Christian is sinless, but a true believer will sin less and less, not sin habitually. Every great personality mentioned in the Bible sinned at one time or another." Abraham lied about his wife. Moses lost his temper and disobeyed God. Peter denied the Lord three times. But sin was not the the settled practice of these men's lives. It was an incident in their lives, totally contrary to their normal habits. And when they sinned, they admitted it and asked God to forgive them. An unsaved person, even if he professes to be a Christian but is a counterfeit, lives a life of habitual sin. Sin, especially the sin of unbelief, is the normal thing in his life. He has no divine resources, resources to draw on. His professional faith, if any, is not real. This is the, the distinction in view in John, 1 John 3, verses 1 to 10. A true believer does not live in habitual sin. He may commit sin as an occasional wrong act, uh, but he will not practice sin, make it a settled habit of his life. The difference is that a true Christian knows God. Remember we talked about knowing God uh, a couple weeks ago? And the word that's used means a a deep, intimate knowledge. The kind of knowledge when you're one with somebody, like when you're one with your spouse, and you know them in a very deep and intimate way. And how that that is the word used of our relationship with Christ as believers, true believers, that we know God, not just with head knowledge, but a deep, abiding knowledge. Intimate knowledge that comes through saving faith when we were connected to him, uh, with union with him, right? The difference is that a true Christian knows God. A counterfeit Christian may talk about God and get involved in religious activities, but he does not really know God. The person who has been born of God through faith in Christ knows God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And because he knows them intimately, He lives a life of obedience. He does not practice sin, end quote. Guys, understand there are many people today that consider themselves Christians who are actively practicing, let's say, the homosexual lifestyle. John says they are deceiving themselves to believe themselves to be Christians. I remember in the last president, uh, you know, campaign, presidential race, you had um, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, right? was running for president. And uh, Mayor Pete is an openly gay man married to another man. And while he was uh, on the campaign trail, he would make comments that God made him a gay man. Mike Pence, who is a Christian, challenged that concept, Uh, you know, and quoting the Bible. And Pete Buttigieg shot back on Twitter and basically said, look, I know that God has made me this way. And for you to judge my heart is wrong. Well, we're not judging your heart as much as we're judging your life. Uh, You know, I mean, the things that are in the heart come out in the way a person lives. And the idea is that, look, you can call yourself anything you want. You can think God, you know, made you this way and that. I mean, every sinner in the world could use that as justification. person who loves to commit adultery can say, God made me this way. The person who loves to defile children can say, well, God made me a pedophile. You could take any sin and try to justify it and rationalize it by saying, God made me this way. But what did God say about it? Because God condemns homosexuality in both the Old and New Testament. Now listen, God loves homosexuals. I mean, Jesus died for them. We want to see them saved. But anybody who justifies their sin... By making it seem that God made them this way, well, they're going to stand before God someday in the day of judgment and come to a horrible reality. He did not make them that way and told them that if they practiced that lifestyle, they were not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. We are living in the last days, I believe. And in these last days of apostasy and deception, in the Christian church now, many people attend churches who are not interested in hearing teaching from God's word, but only hearing things that will, you know, quote-unquote, bless their lives here on earth. Now, Paul spoke to a young pastor. His name was Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, you know it. I'll just read it to you. Paul said in verses 1 to 4, I solemnly urge you, Timothy, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. The Greek is wholesome teaching. Where do we get our word healthy from? Hygienic. Uh, healthy teaching. The only healthy teaching is going to come from God's word. Okay, Many churches are teaching everything but God's word. But the only wholesome teaching or healthy teaching comes from God's word. It must be taught faithfully, and I believe verse by verse is a great way to do it. That way you cover the whole counsel of God. Paul said to Timothy, they will follow these people in in, in churches. And by the way, these are churchgoers. Uh, When he says, you know, the time will come when they will not endure, endure sound doctrine. It's not about people in the church. People in the world have never endured sound doctrine. It's not about the world. It's about the church in the last days becoming apostate. These folks will follow their own desires. They don't want to hear God's word. And will look for for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth of God and chase after myths. And we're seeing, folks, we are living that prophecy out right now. There's never been a time in the history of the church that we see this prophecy of Paul coming to pass as we see it today. Along these lines, there are people who attend churches that are more concerned about their felt needs than they are about that church teaching them the word of God, how to obey God's word, even holding them accountable when they violate what God has commanded. Folks don't want that. A lot of folks, they just, they look at the church, I think, as a kind of a glorified group therapy session. The pastor is not a spiritual leader uh, whose re- responsibility is to teach them the word of God. They don't want a pastor like that. They want a sanctified, you know, psychologist. You know, so I'm Dr. Phil, not Pastor Phil, <laughs> to some of these people. Because they come to church, they don't want to hear about sin, judgment, dying to self, taking up your, they not want to hear about that. Make me feel good about myself. I feel bad about myself, Pastor. I want to feel good about myself. Uh, do, say something to bolster my fragile self-esteem. That's what we see today. Of course, there are myriads of churches throughout the world, so-called Christian churches. They're only too happy to accommodate these people. Listen, if it will build their churches numerically and bless them financially. Look, there wouldn't be false shepherds in the church if there wasn't a market for them. Right? If people didn't want to have their ears tickled, there wouldn't be ear ticklers who will tell them whatever... They want to hear as long as they'll keep coming to the church, donating a lot of money. This is where we are. These are the last days apostate churches, Paul the Apostle and the other writers of the New Testament warned us about. Churches, and I'm thinking of pastors primarily, that are more concerned with pleasing people than they are in being faithful servants of Jesus Christ. You all remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. As Paul had to talk tough to the Galatians because they entertained false shepherds who came in and began to fill them with all kinds of false doctrine. So Paul heard about it, fires off a very strong letter where he's rebuking and correcting. And after he, because he loved them. He loved them. And wanted to see them walking in truth. And at one point he says, For do I not persuade men or God? Am I a man pleaser? Or am I a servant of Jesus Christ? He said, do I seek to please men? For if I seek to please men, I am no longer a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Pastors, you got one of two choices. Are you going to be men pleasers or God honorers? Those are the only two choices. Are you going to please people to build your church and enrich yourselves? Or are you going to be faithful shepherds who will teach God's people the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God in these last days in that regard though these churches that are tickling ears and telling people what they want to hear are basically giving people that attend their churches a license to sin they may not put it in those terms but when you basically tell people that the lifestyle that they've chosen is fine god is love you know i mean he's, Maybe you've driven by a church with um, a marquee and a rainbow flag and says, you know, we love everybody. No, you don't. You don't love everybody. What that means is we accept homosexuals in our church and we believe they were made that way by God. We encourage them in their lifestyle. Well, you don't love them. If you love them, you tell them the truth. The Bible says... Those who practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, right here, these churches are giving people a license to sin, but make, no, make uh, no mistake about it, these teachings sound very positive and affirming, very tolerant, but that kind of teaching will not save their people from hell. In fact, it will condemn them to, condemn them to a Christless eternity. Let me just read these to you because we're running out of time. Because the Bible talks, it warns us, warns people about not following the truth, but instead trying to justify their sin in the name of God. And Paul said in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived, talking to these people. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap of the flesh corruption, judgment, hell. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, obviously, he's got in mind churchgoers who are living an unrighteous life, have justified it, ex- excuse themselves, and God loves me, God made me this, whatever they're saying, Right? And Paul says, look, do not be deceived. Uh, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake about it, right? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He went on to say, and such were some of you. That's a very important statement to add on. He didn't say, and such did some of you. He said, and such were some of you. Any Christian can fall into any one of these sins at any given time. I'm not advocating for it. I'm just saying. David committed adultery and then had her husband to cover his tracks murdered. He still went to heaven. Now, his life with God was never quite the same. There was consequences. I'm not saying it was a good thing. I'm just saying you can be a child of God and commit some pretty horrible sins, repent, and be forgiven, and go to heaven still. We're talking not about actions. We're talking about a lifestyle. A lifestyle. This is what people are, not what they do. Very very important thing. Uh, we understand that, you know, when, when God is talking about these things, these are cat- categories of people who practice sin because that's their nature you know my pastor used to say look i was reading uh first of all a um, an article uh, by a christian who was talking about our leaders and how some of them justify lying because they say that it's for our own good that they lie so they're virtuous and they're lying because they love us they're lying to us because they they love us and want the best for our lives right and this christian author said look you're lying because you're a liar. That's who you are. Now, my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, used to say, this is a little dated at this point, he said, stealing a horse doesn't make you a horse thief. It only proves that you are a horse thief. If you were not a horse thief, you could never steal a horse. Now, you can put car or whatever you want to upgrade it to, but you know, you get the point. People will do according to their nature. This was all of our nature to do sin. We all had our favorite sins, but it was in our nature to sin. We did it every day because that's who we were. When we accepted Christ, that all changed. We received a new nature. Such were some of you. But you've been washed, justified, sanctified by the Spirit of God through the blood of Christ, Paul went on to say, right? Now listen, it's true now, once we are born again and receive a new nature, the old nature doesn't just go away. Don't you wish it would? The old nature doesn't just go away. It remains and seeks to still dominate us and keep us living in sin. Turn to Galatians 5. You all know it, but let me read it to you out of the NLT, second edition. Again, once we are born again, we have a new nature, but the old nature still hangs around. What happens? Well, Paul tells us. He said in verse 17, Galatians 5:17, "The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit, our new nature, wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what our sinful, fallen nature desires to do. These two forces, these two natures are constantly fighting one another, so you are not free to carry out the good intentions you have. Paul said it in Romans 7. Things I, I love the Word of God. I, I desire to keep the Word in my, my heart. I, I love it, but I don't always keep it. Right? I mean, we, we, we've all been there, right? I mean, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Why how do you overcome that? Paul tells us here in verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does that mean, to walk in the Spirit? Well, you can go online and get our teaching on this out of Galatians 5. But very simply, walking in the Spirit means, first of all, you're born of the Spirit, you're saved. And then, walking implies motion. So a static Christian life, where you're not walking, you're standing still, As I've said before, I'll say it again. If you're not moving forward, you're going to start sliding backward. That's why God calls it a walk. Because we're always to be moving forward. And how do we walk in the spirit? Well, be in the word of God, faithfully. uh, Be in communion with God in prayer. Be around the people of God, the church, and so on. Guys, a Christian has an old nature from his physical or her physical birth and a new nature from their spiritual birth. And as God said, with the original physical creation, everything would bring forth after its what? Kind. So the original creation fell. We were born of a fallen man and woman, Adam and Eve. And therefore, we continued on in the way of our fallen parents. Again, God said with regard to the original physical creation, everything would bring forth after its kind. And so too with the new creation with the new creation. Guys, you know, we're done. Let me just wrap this up. But those who are born again are called new creations, right? Second Corinthians 5.17 Who have received the nature of God, right? Isn't that what happened when you received Christ? You were born again. What happened? Second Peter one verse four. Peter tells us God, the spirit moved in. We became partakers of his divine nature. And guys, it's the most natural thing in the world for a child to imitate their parents. Um, I remember when my kids were little, uh, sometimes they imitated me, and it wasn't a very flattering imitation. (laughs) Most of what your kids learn is caught, not taught. They watch us, right? But it's the most natural thing for a little child to imitate their parents. If you're born again, it's the most natural thing in the world for you as a little spiritual child of God to imitate your Heavenly Father. I remember when I first got saved, I was only saved a couple of days. Already, I knew that I wanted to stop doing some things I was doing and start doing other things. I wanted to be an imitator of my Father in heaven, and I know that you did too. But true children, true children of God can induce sin. We know that. John says, if you say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? But they can't go on living habitually in sin. That's the point he was making. They can't practice sin on a daily basis. The Holy Spirit won't let us do that. The Spirit of God will make... (laughs) I was telling for a service that, you know, when we say, well, you can't practice sin as a Christian because the Holy Spirit won't let you... They say, well, what are you talking about? He's going to force me? What about my free will? Give it a rest. All I'm saying is God can make it so miserable that you run back to him and repent. It's like the prodigal son, right? I want to live in the world. I want to experience life. Dad, I'm too confined here. Give me my inheritance so I can go out and spread my wings and, 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 and do my thing. Okay, son, here's your money. The kid was already gone. Father knew that. In his heart, he was gone. Let's the kid go out and spend all his inheritance on wine, women, and song. Runs out of money. His so-called friends abandoned him. and The only job he can find to make any kind of money is slopping pigs, which if you're a Jew, that's about as low as it gets because pigs are the ultimate unclean animal. And while he was slopping these pigs, the Bible says he came to his senses. senses. The way of the transgressor is hard. God says, if you think there is more out in the world for you to experience, you think that living in the world is better than living with me in fellowship, then go do it. And the world will kick the snot out of us. That's just how it is. And at one point, hopefully we will come to our senses. And the kid said to himself, I had it good in my father's house. I need to get back. To my father's house <laughs> the Holy Spirit when we're living in sin or we're falling into sin will make the conviction so intense <laughs> in our life so miserable that eventually we're going to be broken and want to get our life right with God and if you doubt that listen to what David said when he went through a whole year of backsliding after he had sinned with Bathsheba right Psalm 32, verses three to five: When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long, day and night. Listen, your hand of discipline was heavy upon me; my strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all, confessed all my sins to you, and and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, "I will confess my rebellion to the Lord." came back, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. That's how our God, he loves us. He doesn't want us walking in sin. All right, one last time, John 6, we'll close. So Jesus prayed, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Guys, again, just to drive this home, Keeping God's word doesn't make you a Christian. It simply proves that you are a Christian. Just as an apple doesn't make the tree an apple tree, it simply bears witness to the fact that it is an apple tree. So too the fruit in a Christian's life. That fruit, and I'm thinking primarily the fruit of the Spirit, that fruit doesn't make you a Christian. You can't run around going, I want to be a Christian, so I'm going to go out there and try to love more and have joy and peace and I'm going to run around and do all these things that the Bible talks about. No, no, no. Those things, first of all, you can't do those in your flesh. But those things will not make you a Christian. They're just the fruit of you being connected to the vine, John 15, and the life of God flowing from Jesus Christ into your life and through your life, bearing fruit, fruit of the Spirit. It just bears witness to the fact, all the fruit in the Christian life bears witness to the fact that we are a child of God with the nature of God within us. Jesus said in Matthew 7, you will know them by their what? Fruit. The fruit will be the evidence that they are genuine children of God. Now listen, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I don't have as much fruit as this person. Maybe I'm not saved. Look, we all bear fruit at a different rate at any given time, okay? But even the most carnal Christian, if you look hard enough, you're going to find a couple shriveled grapes. (laughs) It's there. Not a lot. But there's going to be something. That's good. Because something indicates a new birth. Now, Work on drawing closer to God that you might bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. But very important. All right. We'll leave it here this morning. And um, this was heavy on Jesus' heart. Um, that his disciples under, would understand that many had followed him. Judas being primary example. They didn't know him. We're not really born again. And so Jesus wanted to reinforce to them, look, my sheep, hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. They were called out of the world. They're not the same people they once were. And Father, I'm worried about them when they go into the world to preach the gospel. I won't be with them anymore. You'll be with them. The Spirit of God will be in them. But I want to pray right here and now that they would have your strength and operate in your grace and so on. So we will continue looking at the Lord's prayer and his heart next time, God willing. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your truth. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you sent your son to die on our behalf. And, Lord, we ask that you would keep blessing these studies in your word because we want, Lord, to glean from your word everything you want us to know that we might be fruitful and go forward serving you uh, in a very fruitful way as we are living on this earth. Lord, thank you we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.